Chapter 12 of The Castle of Twilight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Castle of Twilight by Margaret Horton Potter. Chapter 12 Lore. Through the long, chilly night, mother and daughter slept together, each with peace in her heart. At dawn, however, Madame slipped quietly out of Laura's unconscious embrace and rose and prepared herself for the day. And presently she left the room, while Laura still slept. It was some time afterwards, before there crept upon the blank of the girl's mind, a dim fluttering shadow, telling her that light had come again over the world. How long it was before this first sense became a double consciousness, no one knows. Laura's stupor had been so heavy, she had been so utterly dead in her weariness that it required a powerful subconscious effort to throw off the bonds of sleep. But when the two heavy eyes at last fell open, she gasped and sat suddenly up in her bed. Holy mother, it is an angel! The face that she looked on smiled sunnily. No, I am Lenore. And she would have come around to the side of the bed, but that lore held up a hand to say her. Prithee, prithee, do not move, thou spirit of Lenore. Am I then come into thy land? Isn't heaven for me? For an instant, at the easily explainable illusion about that other, the new Lenore's head drooped, and she sighed. How full of the dead maiden was every member of this twilight castle. But again, shaking off the momentary melancholy, she lifted her eyes and answered Lore's fixed look. So these two young women whose histories had been so utterly different, and yet in their way so pitiably alike, learned in this one long glance to know each other. Into Laura's deeply burning eyes, Lenore gazed till she was as one under a hypnotic spell. Her senses were all but swimming before the other turned her look, and then she asked dreamily, Thou art Lenore, tell me, who is Lenore? The other hesitated for a minute, moment. She had learned from Alex on the previous evening the history of this strange homecoming and all that anyone knew of what had gone before it, and she realized that any question that Laura might ask must be fully answered. Yet it cost her a strong mental effort before she could say, I was the wife of thy brother. Ah, Geralt, where is he? Laura paused for an instant. Thou wast his wife, thou sayest? Lenore gazed at her sadly, wondering if the wanderer must so soon be confronted with new sorrow. Laura sat there, bewildered, but questioning with her eyes, a suggestion of fear beginning to show in her face. Lenore realized how Madame must shrink from telling the story of Geralt's death. So presently, lifting her eyes to Laura's again, she said in a low voice, Geralt's wife was I, because since September thy brother sleeps in the chapel by his father. Laura listened with wide eyes to these words, and having heard, she neither moved nor spoke. A few tears gathered slowly and fell down her face to her woolen robe, and then she bowed her head till it rested on the hands clasped on her knee. Lenore stood where she was, looking on, knowing not whether to go or stay, realizing instinctively that there are natures that desire to find their own comfort. While Lenore was still debating the point, Madame Eleanor and Alex came together into the room, 
and as soon as Madame beheld Lenore, she knew that her daughter had learned all that she was to know of sorrow, that what she herself most dreaded had mercifully come to pass, and going to the bed, she took Laura into her arms. Their embrace was as close as the first of yesterday had been. Laura clung to her mother, getting comfort from the mere contact, and in her child's grief for the dead, Eleanor felt the touch of that sympathy for which she had hungered in silence through the first shock of her loss. For Laura was of her own blood and of Geralt's, had known the seigneur as brother, companion, and equal, and had looked up to him even as he had looked up to his mother. Thus bitterly poignant, as were these moments of fresh grief, there was in them also a great consolation, the consolation of companionship. And when finally Madame raised her head, there was written in her face that none had seen there since the time of Laura's departure for her novitiate at La Madeleine. Then she reminded Laura of Alex's presence, and Laura, looking up, smiled through her tears and held out both hands. Alex, Alex, my sister, art thou glad I am come home? So glad, Lord. There have been many hours empty for want of thee since thy going, and art thou... She hesitated a little. Art thou to stay with us now? Accidentally, inadvertently, had come the question that had lain hidden both in Laura's heart and in her mother's since almost the first moment of the return. Laura herself dared not answer Alex, but she looked fearfully at her mother, her eyes filled with mute pleading. And Eleanor, seeing the look, made a sudden decision in her heart. Yea, Laura shall stay with us now. There shall be no doubting of it. Laura is my child, and I shall keep her here with me, and all Christendom forbid. The last sentence flew out in answer to Madame's secret fears, and she did not realize how much meaning it might hold for other ears. Her speech was followed by an intense silence. Laura did not dare ask aloud the questions that reason answered for her, and Lenore and Alex both felt that it was not their place to speak. In the end, then, Eleanor herself had to break the strain, which she did by saying with a brisk air, Come, come, Lord, rise and go into thine own room here. I have laid out one of the old-time gowns with shoes, chemise, bliot, and under-tunic complete, and also a wimple and head veil. Make thyself ready for the day, while we go down to break our fast. When thou'rt dressed, I will have food brought thee here, and after thou'st eaten, Monseigneur will come up to thee. Hasten, for tis rarely cold. Lord jumped from the bed, eager to see her childhood's room again, eager for her meal, most of all eager, in spite of her apprentiveness, to know what St. Nazaire had to say to her. As she paused to gather her mantle clothes about her, and to push the hair out of her eyes, her gaze chanced to meet that of Lenore. There was between them no spoken word, but in that instant was born a sudden affection which, while they lived together, saw not the end of its growth. As Eleanor and the two young women left Madame's room on, the, on their way downstairs, Laura entered alone into the room of her youth and her innocence. It was exactly as it had been on the day she last saw it. The small curtained bed was ready for occupancy. The chair, the table, the round steel mirror, the carved wooden chest for clothes, lastly, the small prédu, were just where they had always stood. The wooden shutters were open, and the half-transparent glass was all aflame with the reflection of sunlight on the sea, for the cold, clear morning was advancing. Across a narrow settle, beside one of the windows, lay the clothes that the mother had selected. 
the girlhood clothes that she had worn in those years of her other life. Like one that dimly dreams, Laura took these garments up one by one and examined them, handling them with the same ruminative tenderness of touch that she might have used for someone that had been very dear to her, but had died long since, so long that the bitterness of death had gone from memory. When she had looked at them for a long time, Laura began slowly to don her clothes. She performed her toilet with all the precision of her maidenhood, coiling her hair with a care that suggested vanity, and adjusting her fillet and veil with the same touch that they had known so many times before. Her outer tunic was of green say, and even though her whole form had grown deplorably thin, she found it a little snug in bust and hip. Finally, when she was quite dressed, she sat down at one of the windows to wait for someone to bring food to her. To her surprise, it was Lenore who carried up the tray of bread and milk, and she found herself a little relieved that no former member of the castle was to see her yet in the familiar dress of long ago. When she took the tray from the frail white hands of her sister-in-law, she murmured gratefully, I thank thee that thou hast deigned to wait on me, madam. Lenore's big blue eyes opened wide as she smiled and answered, Prithee, say not, madam. Rather, if thou canst, I would have thee call me sister, for such I should wish to be to thee. My sister, Laura's voice was choked as she raised both arms and threw them about the slender body of the other girl with such abandon that Lenore was obliged to put her off a little. Finally, however, Laura sat down to the table on which she had placed her simpler breakfast, and as she carried the first bite to her lips, Lenore moved softly toward the door. Before going out, however, she turned and said quietly, Thou wilt not be long alone. The bishop is coming to thee at once. Laura's spoon fell suddenly into her bowl, and she looked quickly around, but to her chagrin, Lenore had already slipped away. Left to herself, Laura could not eat. Hungry as she was, her anxiety and her suspense were greater than her appetite. Why was it that Lenore had so suddenly escaped from her? Why was it that she had seen no members of the castle company save three women since her homecoming? Why was she forced thus to eat alone? Above all, why should the bishop come to see her instead of receiving her, as had been his custom in the chapel? Laura remembered the last serious talk she had had with St. Nazaire and shuddered. In her own mind, she realized perfectly the spiritual enormity of her sin and however persistently she might refuse to confess it to herself, she knew also what the penalty of that sin must be. It was many minutes before she could force herself to recommence her meal, and she had taken little when there was a tap on the door. She had not time to do more than rise when the door opened, and her mother, followed by St. Nazaire, entered the room. Madame dropped behind as the bishop advanced, and Lord bowed before him. "'My child, I trust thou art found well in body?' said St. Nazaire, more solemnly than she had ever heard him speak. Yes, Monseigneur, was a subdued reply. Now Madame came up and indicated a chair to the bishop, who, after seeing her seated, sat down himself, while Laura remained on her feet in front of them. Then following a pause, uncomfortable to all, terrifying to Laura, who was becoming hysterically nervous with dread, she dared not, however, break the silence, and with a convulsive sigh, she folded her arms across her breast and stood waiting for whatever was to come. Monseigneur regarded her closely and steadily, as if he were reading something that he wished to know of her. 
but at the same time he did not make her shrink from him. On the contrary, his expression brought the assurance that he had lost nothing of his old-time sympathy with human nature. His first question was unhesitatingly direct. Lord, he said very quietly, art thou bound by the marriage tie to this Bertrand Flamcourt? At the sound of the name, Lore trembled, and her white face grew whiter still. No, she answered in a half-whisper, at the same time clenching her two hands till two the nails pierced her flesh. And thou hast lived with him under his name since thy departure from the prairie of the holy Madeline? Lore paused for a moment to steady her voice, and then answered huskily, Until two months passed. And in that two months... I have begged my way from where we were, hither. Thou hast in this time known none but the man Flamacor? Laura crimsoned and put up her hand in protest. Then she said quietly, None. Monsignor bowed his head and remained silent for a moment. When he looked at her again, it was with a gentler expression. Lor, said he in a very kindly voice, but a little time after thy flight from the prairie, I placed upon thee, and upon the man that abducted thee, the ban of excommunication, for violating the holiest laws of the Holy Church. That ban is not yet raised, and by it, as well thou knowest, all that come in voluntary contact with thee are defiled. For a moment, Laura dropped her head to her breast. When she lifted it again, her face had not changed, and she asked, Can that ban ever be lifted? Yes, by me. Lor fell upon her knees before him. What must I do? Tell me the penance. I would give anything, even to my life. Yet nay, there is one thing I will not do. St. Nazaire frowned. What is that? he asked. Father, I will not go back into the prairie. I will never return alive into that living death. Rather would I cast myself from the top of the castle cliff into the sea below and trust. Lor, Lor, be silent, cried Eleanor sharply. Lar stopped and stood motionless, her eyes aflame, her face deathly white, her fingers twining and intertwining among themselves, as she waited for St. Nazaire to speak again. His hands were folded upon his knee, and he appeared lost in thought. Only after an unendurable suspense did he look again into the girl's eyes, saying slowly, in a tone lower than was habitual to him, Thou tookest once the vows of the nun. These, it is true, thou hast broken continually and hast abused and violated till their chain of virtue binds thee no more. Yet the words of those vows passed thy lips scarce more than a year agone, and for that reason thou art not free. Ere thou canst be absolved of duty to the prairie, thou must go to the mother prioress and ask her humbly if she will again receive thee into the convent, and she refuse, thou wilt be freed from the bond. Monseigneur, Will she set me free? asked Lor in a low tone. Yea, Lor, for methinks I shall counsel her to, so to do. Thou hast not the vocation of a nun. Thy spirit is too much thine own, too freedom-loving, to accept the suppression of that secluded life. If I will, I can see to it that thou art freed from the priory. But that being accomplished, what then, demoiselle Lor? Ah, after that, may not the ban be removed? Can I obtain no absolution? Can I not be made free to dwell here in my home, in my beloved castle, my fitting crepuscule? Mother, shall I not be received here? Have I no home? This is thy home, and I, thy mother, always, 
though my soul be condemned to eternal fire lore thou art my child the flesh of my flesh and the blood of my blood and i will not give thee up eleanor the bishop spoke sharply and his face grew severe eleanor deceive not thyself nor yet thou thou child of wilfulness lore had sinned not only against the rules of her church and her god but against the laws of mankind her sin has been great and very ugly think not that by brave words of motherhood or many tears and pleadings of sudden repentance she can regain her old position the stain of this bygone year will remain upon her for ever she is under a heavy ban and she must go through a rigorous penance ere she can be received again among the undefiled art ready lore to place thy sick soul in my hands lore bent her head then i prescribe for thee this penance thou shalt go alone on foot to holy madeline and there seek of the reverend mother thy freedom from the prairie if it be granted thou mayst return hither to the same room and remain shut up in utter solitude to pray and fast as rigorously as thy body will admit for the space of fourteen days if by that time thou art come to see truly the magnitude of thy offence and if thy mind be purified of evil thoughts and thy heart open to the abounding mercy of god i will absolve thee of thy sin and lift away the ban of heaven for meseemeth my daughter that thy sin found thee out or ever thou hadst reached this house of safety there is the mark of suffering upon thy brow and seeing it i bow before the power of god and holdeth over us whithersoever we may go but see that in thy lonely hours thou find true repentance for thy evil deed for if that come not then truly shalt thou be an outcast on the face of the earth i will go to-day to the prairie to talk with the mare pitus if thy heart accepteth my word lore fell upon her knees before the bishop and kissed his hand in token of submission saint nazaire suffered her for a few moments to humble herself and then lifting her up he rose himself and quickly left the room eleanor remained a few moments longer with her daughter and then went away leaving lore alone again to dread the ordeal that was before her the facing of the assemblage of nuns in that place that she remembered as her heart's prison by order of the bishop lore was left alone all day and this twenty-four hours was the most wretched that she had to spend after her return to le crepe school on the following day she went alone to the prairie not on foot as the bishop had at first commanded for the snow was too deep and lord too much exhausted by her privations for the last two months for her safety to endure the fatigue of such a walk she rode th thither on horseback and possibly extracted more souls good out of the ride than she would have got afoot for the whole way was laden with bitter memories and grief and shame the bishop himself met her at the prairie gate and he remained at her side throughout the time that she was there the ordeal was not terrible Petus bore out her name and lore thought that the spirit of the saviour had surely descended upon the reverend woman as an unheard-of concession the penitent was permitted to recant her vows before only the eight officers of the prairie assembled in the chapter house instead of before the whole company of nuns in the great church and thus lore did not see at all her former companion and abitur sarah alois a meeting with whom she had dreaded more than anything else and when in the afternoon lore finally rode away from the prairie gate it was with a heart throbbing with devotion for saint nazaire and his goodness to her swiftly and eagerly in the falling twilight she traversed the road leading back to the castle and when she reached home night had fallen 
Her mother, who had spent the day in the deepest anxiety, was waiting for her in the great hall, and the moment that Laura entered, weary with now unusual exercise, she cried out, It is well, thou art dismissed? And as Laura began to answer the question with a full description of the day, her mother drew her slowly up the stairs, across the hall, and finally into her own narrow room, which was to be the chamber of penance. When they entered there, Laura became suddenly silent, for the little place was dark and chill, and the thought of what was before her struck an added tremor to her heart. Madame read her thoughts and said gently, "'Be not so sad, dear child, when thou thinkest of the fair, pure, loving life that lies before us, in this castle of thy youth. Surely fourteen little days of peaceful solitude cannot fright thee. Think always that God is on high, and that around thee are those that love thee well, and thus thou canst not be very miserable. Lights and food shall be brought, and then, I bid thee, make much of thy solitude, my child, for there is no more healing balm for wounded souls. Now commending thee to the mercy of the all-merciful, I leave thee. In the darkness, Laura clung to her mother as if it were the, their last embrace, and Madame had to put the girl's hands away before she would bear to be left alone. But at last the door was closed and bolted on the outside, and Laura, within, knew that her imprisonment was begun. Feeling her way to a chair, she seated herself thereon and laid her head in her hands. Burning and incoherent thoughts hurried through her brain, and she was still lost in these when there was a soft tap at her door, and the outer bolt was drawn. She rose and stumbled hurriedly to open it, but there was no one outside. On the floor was a burning candle, and a tray on which stood a jug of water and a loaf of bread. As she took them in, Laura experienced a wave of desolation. However, she set the food and drink down on her table, lighted the torch on the wall at the candle flame, and finally sat herself down to eat. No grace to God passed her lips as she took her first bite from the loaf, for her heart was bitter in its weariness. But after she had eaten and drunk, she lost the inclination to brood, and, overcome with weariness and the emotions of the day, she hurriedly disrobed, extinguished both her lights, and crept, with her first sense of comfort, into the warmly covered bed. For a long time she lay there, chilly and a little nervous, but thinking of nothing. Then gradually her spirit grew calmer, some of the weariness was done away, and she fell asleep. When next she awoke, it was daylight, a grey January morning, and Laura realized, rather disconsolately, that she could sleep no more for the time. Therefore she left her bed, threw a mantle around her, and went to the door to see if there might be food without. Somewhat to her dismay, she found the door locked fast, and having no means of knowing what the hour might be, she thought that possibly she had overslept, and that she would have nothing to eat throughout the morning. The heaviness of her head told her that she had slept too long, and, not daring to get back to bed again, she began resignedly to dress. She was in the midst of her toilet when there came a tap at the door, and she flew to open it. Outside stood a kitchen boy, who handed her a tray containing fresh bread and water, and asked her with formal respect for the stale food of the night before. This she gave him, and immediately the door was shut and rebolted. With grim precision, Laura finished dressing and broke her fast, meantime keeping her thoughts fixed on the most trivial subjects. But when her meal was over, and she knew how long the day must be, and realized that there was no escape from herself, she sat down in the largest chair in the room, let her eyes wander over the familiar objects, and allowed her thoughts to take what form they would. The terrible fatigue of her lonely journey was quite gone now, 
nor was there in her own person anything to remind her of her recent suffering. Her body was clean, well-clothed, and warm, and in her youth the memory of the past terrible two months grew dim, and instead there rose up before her mental vision a very different picture, an image, the image of the idol and the ruin of her life, her joy, her shame, her ecstasy, and her despair, Bertrand Flamacor, the troubadour, in his matchless, irresponsible untrustworthiness, his incomparable beauty, his fiery enthusiasm. For strange as it may be, all the bitterness, all the suffering that this man had brought her, had not killed her love for him, nor blackened his image in her heart. There being nothing to check her fancy, Lore went mentally back to the hour of her flight with the troubadour, and passed slowly over the whole period of their life together. From the first days of physical agony and mental shame, through the period of increasing delight, to the culmination of her happiness in him and the beginning of its end. Once more she reviewed their journey out of Brittany, up the north coast to Calais, whence, in the fair spring weather, they had taken passage to Dover in England, thence making their way by slow stages to London. Here, in the train of the Duke of Gloucester, uncle of the young Richard, the most powerful man in the kingdom, the two had passed their summer. To Lore, it was a summer of fairyland. Flamacor had become her god, and she saw him ascend height after height of popularity and favor. His nationality and his profession won for him instant recognition, for Chouers from province were Persian nightingales to the England of that day. And after his first introduction into high places, his breeding, his dress, and his graceful personality brought him an enviable position, especially among the women of the court. Lord passed always as his wife, and was adroitly exploited among the court gallants. She was still too single-minded to receive the slightest taint from this life. She was found to be as incorruptible as she was pretty, and by this unusual fact her own reputation went up, and her popularity rivaled that of the troubadour. If this manner of life sometimes weighed on her, and brought her something of remorse, she found her consolation in the fact that Flamacor never wavered in his fidelity. For the time being, he was thoroughly infatuated with her, and in, the, in their stolen hours of golden solitude, both of them found their reward for the oft-times wearisome round of pleasures that with them constituted work. Now, alone in her solitary prison room, Lore of Le Crepuscule reviewed her high and holy noon of love, forgetting its subsequence, brooding only over its supreme forgetfulness, till the madness of it was tingling in her every wane, and there rushed over her again, in a tumultuous wave, all that fierce longing, all that hopeless desire, that she thought herself to have endured for the last time. In their early days, Flamacor had been so much her companion, so devoted to her in little, pretty telling ways, so constant to her and to her alone, that the thought of any life other than the one with him would have been to her like a promise of eternal death. It was not more their hours of delirium than those of silent communion that they had held together, which brought her now the tears of hopeless yearning. All that she desired without him was death. All that she had loved or cared for was with him. At this time came to her the thought of Lenore, and she had an instinctive feeling that God had seen fit to give her the most precious of all gifts, motherhood. This penitential cell had not been the end for her. Three days and three nights did Laura spend in the state of bitter rebellion against her lot, and then from overwishing came a change. Up to this time, in her new flood of grief for the separation from Flamacor, she had driven from her mind every creeping memory of the day of his change toward her. 
Another woman had come upon the horizon of his life, a young and noble Englishwoman of high station, and soon he was pursuing her with the ardor that he no longer spent on lore. This lady was one of the first that they had met in England, and Laura had liked her before Flamacor's new passion began to develop. But with her first real fears, the poor girl's jealousy was born, and soon it became the moving spirit of her life. Many times in the ensuing weeks, those bitter weeks of early autumn, did angry words pass between her and her protector, her only shield from the world in the strange land. Once, in a fit of uncontrollable grief and passion, she had left him, and for two days wandered about the streets of London till starvation drove her back to the lodging of the Flaming Heart. Her reception of quiet indifference on her re return showed her that her world was in a state of dissolution. For a week she dwelt among its ruins, and then, when she demanded it, he told her that she was no longer dear to him, and he begged her to take what money he had and set out whether she would, assuring her that she would find no difficulty in securing some excellent abiding place in this adopted land. Laura took her dismissal heroically. She knew him too well to be horrified at the suggestion as to her procedure, and, refusing his gifts of money, she sold the clothes and ornaments that he had given her in a happier day, and with the proceeds started on her return to Crepuscule. Her little story gave out when she had scarce more than reached France and the last half of the journey had been accomplished by literally begging her way from hut to hut, never giving up the idea of at last reaching the only refuge she could trust, the place where now she sat dreaming out her woe. Through the bitter hours when her old jealousy took possession of her again and seared her with its hot flames, Laura found herself, more than once, gazing fixedly at the little prédu in the corner of the room, where as a child she had been wont to kneel each night and morning. Since the hour she had left the prairie, a prayer had scarcely passed her lips, and now, in the time of reactive sorrow, she felt a pride about kneeling and supplication to him, whose law she had so freely broken. In the course of time, for so dot solitude were changes in the hearts of the most stubborn, the spirit of real repentance of her sin came over her, and then, for the first time in her young life, she wept unselfish tears. It was only inch by inch that she crept back toward the place of heart's peace. But at length, on the tenth day of her penance, she went to her God, and throwing herself at the feet of the crucifix, claimed her own from the all-merciful. Never in her life of prayers had Lord prayed as she prayed now. Now at last, God was a living being, and she was come home to him for forgiveness and for comfort. Her words sprang from her deepest heart. Tears of joy, not pain, welled up within her, and it seemed as if she felt her purity coming back to her again. She believed that she was received before the throne and listened to, and no absolution of a consecrated bishop had brought her such confidence as this, her first unlettered prayer. When she rose from her knees, it was as if she had been bathed in spirit. Her old joy of youth was again alive within her and shone forth from her eyes with a radiant softness. A strange quiet took possession of her. A new peace was hidden in her heart. Tranquility reigned about her, and the four days of solitude that remained were all too short. She was learning herself anew, but she dreaded that time when others should look into her face and think to find there what she knew was gone from her forever. After her first prayer, she did not often resume the accepted attitude of communication with the Most High, yet she prayed almost continually, with a dreamy fervor peculiar to her state. She still thought of Flamacor, but no longer with desire, only with a gentle regret for the fever of his soul, 
and that he could never know such peace as hers. She also felt remorse for the part she had played in his life, and this remorse was now her only pain. She suffered under it, but it was easier to endure than the terrible restless longing that had once consumed her. Indeed, at this time, Laura spiritually was exaggerated, for solitude is apt to breed exaggeration in whatever mood the recluse happens to be. But this state was also bound to know its reaction, and upon the whole, it was as well that the penitential fortnight was near its end. On the afternoon of the fourteenth day, Laura dressed herself in the somberest robe to be found in her closet, a loose tunic of rusty black with mantle of the same and a rosary around her waist by way of belt. She braided her hair into two long plaits and bound these round and round her head like a heavy fillet. This was all of her coffer. When she was dressed, she stood in front of the mirror and looked at herself by the smoky light of a torch. Her vanity was not flattered by the reflection, but steel is deceitful sometimes, and Laura did not know how much younger she had grown in, in the two weeks of her penance. As the hour of liberty approached, she became not a little excited. The thought of being surrounded with such a throng of familiar faces set her aflame with eagerness, and she waited, literally counting the seconds till she should be set free. Punctually at the hour in which, two weeks before, Laura had been left alone, her door was opened, and Eleanor and Lenore came together into the room to lead the prisoner down to the chapel. Madame clasped her warmly by the hand and looked searchingly into her face. But that was all the salutation that was given, for the ban of excommunication was still upon her, and so without a word the three moved quickly to the stairs, and descending, passed at once into the lighted chapel. Of all the ceremonies that had been performed in that little room since it was built, more than two centuries before, the one that now took place was, was perhaps the most impressive, certainly the most unique. Lore, in her penitential garb, presented a curious contrast to the gaily-robed castle company and to Saint Nazaire in his most gorgeous of canonicals. Yet Lore's face was most interesting to study than anything else in the crowded room. Saint Nazaire, while he confessed and absolved her, watched her with an interest that he had never felt for her before, and he realized that probably never again would he hear such a confession as hers. She told him the whole story of her life after her fight from the prairie, with neither break, hesitation, tremor, nor tear. She took her absolution in uplifted silence, and when the ban of excommunication was raised from her, neither the bishop nor her mother could guess from her face what her feeling was. When she had been blessed, and the general benediction pronounced, all the company came crowding to her to give her welcome. After that followed a great feast at which Laura ate not a mouthful and drank nothing but a cup of milk. And finally, when all the merrymaking was through, the young woman returned alone to her room, and this time, with her door bolted from within, lay down upon her bed and wept as if her heart had finally dissolved in tears. End of chapter 12. Lenore. Recording by Sheetal Prasanna.